Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. On this episode of Partisan Gardens, we're discussing how to preserve our harvests. First, Ren speaks with Tom about a variety of ways that they've learned to preserve their food crops. He walks us through some basic tips for getting started with preserving food, from wet canning to dehydration, fermentation, pressure cooking, and cold storage. Afterwards, Laura and Emily talk to Sandor Katz, author of several books on fermentation. First, here are Ren and Tom. My name's Tom. I live with my partner and a few animals up in the Adirondack region of kind of northern New York State. We moved up here in 2018 from New York City, so kind of made a big change. But the reason why we wanted to make that big change, or at least one of the reasons, was because we wanted to get more involved in growing, foraging, hunting, and kind of processing our own food uh, and have some space to do that. So we were kind of lucky enough to get the opportunity to come up to this piece of land up here where, you know, we've been spending the past three years or so really setting up annual gardens, perennial gardens, where we're kind of focusing on fruit and nut trees as well as perennial vegetables. And then, yeah, we do a lot of foraging and, and hunting as well for more wild foods. It's been really great so far. I mean, it's a, it's a very slow process. We've made a lot of mistakes, but we've learned a lot as well. Um, and yeah, food plays a, a pretty big part of our lives, even though that it feels kind of silly to say, because that's kind of true for everybody. Um, but yeah, we definitely, we spend a lot of time growing or processing or preserving some kind of food. The first year, or I guess the first season where we we really started thinking about food preservation, I think we we kind of made the mistake of just trying to preserve anything and everything. Um, so we were canning a lot of stuff and freezing a lot of things. And, you know, I, I think we weren't necessarily paying that much attention to one, what it is we actually want to eat, 
later on because you know it doesn't really make that much sense to preserve things that you don't really eat very often or you don't really like all that much but i think we were kind of so excited like a lot of people tend to be when they first get started and we want to preserve all of the things doesn't matter what they are and you know that first winter when we went to start eating what we've preserved, we kind of figured out like, you know, okay, maybe, maybe we don't need this much frozen kale or like this many cans of beans. So, you know, now we, we've kind of learned through the past couple of years to be a bit more intentional about, you know, really figuring out what we're going to want to eat, especially in the winter time, because here, you know, we have cold and snowy winters. So most of our food preservation happens, you know, now in the fall so that we could have things like vegetables in the winter time. So I think that was like the first big thing that we try to think about is, you know, what are we going to want to eat in the future? And then secondly, I think it's important to think about, you know, once you have sort of a list of what you want to eat in place, thinking and kind of doing some research on like, what's the best way to preserve that thing. So like the example of kale, right? Like you can blanch or like rapidly boil and then dip in ice water leaves of kale and they will freeze pretty readily. And you can, you know, thaw them out and add them to soups or steam them. And it's, it's a pretty decent way to preserve them. Whereas something like canning, not really a great way to preserve kale. I mean, it's fine, but it comes out a little mushy sort of. So yeah, when we're kind of, we're trying to sort of prepare for what we want to preserve, it's, it's kind of like, what do we actually want to preserve and what's the best way of doing that? One other thing that really comes to mind, especially in the past couple of years, uh, because they've been hard to obtain is if you're going to be doing any canning I and mean, you need, you know, mason jars or ball jars to be able to source those things before canning season, because when canning season comes around, everybody wants them and supplies tend to be pretty limited. I mean, last year supplies were very, very limited. And there was a lot of price gouging going on where people were paying double and triple the price they normally would. But yeah, thinking about the supplies you'll need and getting those supplies, maybe even in the springtime, if you're able to, will be very helpful later once you're actually ready to do the preservation. It's interesting to kind of reframe your relationship with food where you might be planning weeks, if not months in advance. Um, it's a totally different relationship with what you eat. Exactly. I love that. Like taking food from a day by day thing to seasons. Mm -hmm. You mentioned um, making sure you have your essentials, your tools together before the season starts. So could you kind of lay out what the best tactics that you can share? Yeah. So it'd, it'd probably be, be helpful to kind of talk about the different ways of preserving food because there's, there's a lot of different ways and they tend to be um, quite different. So maybe I'll talk about those um, and then kind of segue into uh, the tools and, and ingredients involved. Um, so the first two kind of go hand in hand that I've already sort of mentioned. There's um, canning. Uh, so there's kind of basic water bath canning where you're packing food into a mason jar, putting a lid on it, and then submerging that mason jar into boiling water for a certain amount of time. The heat itself will kind of suck the oxygen out of the jar and the jar will seal in a vacuum and that will preserve the food inside. This is kind of, you know, something that people have been doing for a long time. And water bath canning in, in that way tends to work for food that is acidic. So if it's got a high acid level, 
putting it in boiling water will seal it safely so that bacteria won't grow inside. But for any food that's not acidic that you're going to can, it's kind of a strong recommendation, um, if not a requirement, to use a pressure canner. So the difference between them two is really in a water bath canner, you're going to be putting food into boiling water. So it's boiling at, you know, whatever it is, 212 degrees Fahrenheit, whereas a pressure canner can get much higher than that temperature range. And it uses pressure, of course, to to seal the jars. So things like meats always need to be pressure canned. Any kind of vegetables, leafy vegetables, beans, corn, things like that need to be pressure canned. Whereas more acidic things um, like Well, tomatoes are kind of an edge case. Tomatoes can kind of go either way. But like, for example, if you can a bunch of tomatoes and you put a little bit of lemon juice in with them, that'll raise the acidity enough that you can put those in a water bath. If you're kind of looking for a source to sort of look up some of this information, the the USDA has a website on canning guidelines. They've actually done a pretty good job of laying out what are the steps, what does the procedure look like, you know, lists of foods that you could water bath can versus pressure can. Uh, So that's a really good resource. The company Ball that makes the ball jars also has a book I believe it's just called the ball guide to canning. That's also a really great resource there if you're thinking about doing any kind of canning. But other than that, there's, uh, you know, even older methods of preservation, like, um, you know, fermenting, fermented food has been around for many, many thousands of years as a way to preserve. So a lot of the fermenting that we do is lacto fermentation. So if you think of something like a really simple example is just sauerkraut. Sauerkraut is really simply just, you know, shaved cabbage packed into a jar with salt water and then just kind of left on a counter to ferment. The idea here is that, you know, being submerged in the salt water will prevent you know, the very scientific categorization of of bad bacteria from growing, but will let good bacteria, probiotic bacteria flourish. So it's a way to kind of preserve that cabbage and also make something that's, you know, really delicious, like, like sauerkraut or kimchi is kind of the same, same concept, but you could pretty much lacto ferment, I think almost any kind of vegetable. I mean, certain ones probably wouldn't be very good, but that's a really easy kind of first time preservation project is to just get ahead of cabbage and shred it up and put it in some salt water in a jar. I mean, you can find recipes for this all over the place, but basically it's like if you dip your finger in the salt water, it should kind of taste like ocean water. Like that's about how much salt you need in it. So it's not very much. And then, yeah, just put it on your counter or in a cupboard. Uh, ideally out of direct sunlight and just let it sit. And then after a week or so, taste it. And if you like the taste, then it's done. You could stick it in the fridge or you could stick it in, um, you know, your basement. If you have a colder basement or a cupboard in your house, that's kind of near the floor that stays pretty cool. A cooler temperature will not necessarily stop the fermentation, but it'll slow it down quite a bit. Yeah. Lacto fermenting is great. You could let it go for a long time too. I have sauerkraut that's well over a year old. I still eat it. It's it's really good. It only gets stronger with age. Another preservation method that we we use quite a bit too is cold storing. So this is with often kind of hearty vegetables uh, like potatoes, you know, white potatoes, sweet potatoes, garlic, onions, squash. A lot of those vegetables can be, you know, if they're kind of cured in the right way, uh, you can store them in a, a cool spot. So a basement that might stay around 
45, 50, 55 degrees is a, a good area to store these vegetables. And they'll, they'll keep for months. You know, a lot of the times through the winter, we can have potatoes and squash down in our basement area that will, you know, they generally last until February or March. That's a really great option as well. We actually even cold store eggs uh, from our chickens. Uh, we have a kind of a small flock of laying hens. I, th- I think not a ton of people who don't raise chickens uh, know this, but fresh chicken eggs have a natural antibacterial layer on them. But if you take an egg from a chicken and you wash it, uh, you wash away that protective layer. So the eggs that you buy in the store have to be refrigerated because they're washed. They don't have that protection anymore, but fresh unwashed chicken eggs um, have that layer. And you could also rub them in mineral oil, which again, I'm not sure if it actually does anything, but maybe I'm too trusting. I read it somewhere, so I do it. Uh, and then you could put them in a carton and cold store them. And those eggs will last for months. I mean, we've had them for, you know, three, four months in some cases when we were getting a lot of eggs and, you know, the quality is not perfect after three months or so. Um, it's not as good as when they're fresh, you know, sometimes the, the yolks will break really easily. Um, but you know, it's, it's a still, it's still a great way to preserve eggs. If you have, you know, a surplus and, you know, there's just too many to give away at, at a certain point. And then a couple of other methods uh, we use a little bit less frequently, you know, things like curing, so cured meats or salted meats, smoking is another one that we don't use too often, but I'd like to start kind of experimenting in that area. Freezing is, is pretty, you know, somewhat self-explanatory. There's certain things that you have to do to some vegetables to freeze them. Like I mentioned, you know, blanching kale before you throw it in the freezer but you could freeze things like squash if you chop it into cubes and put it in a bag and freeze it. Um, it'll help it keep a bit longer. That's that's a good option if you don't have the space. And then finally, pickling. So making pickles is kind of a form of, of preservation too. So we make a lot of you know dill pickles and bread and butter pickles and pickled carrots and beans and things like that. Pickling is really just putting those vegetables, submerging them into uh, vinegar solution with any kind of spices that you want. And you kind of let it soak in that vinegar solution and it, it penetrates the vegetables. And, you know, since they're submerged in vinegar, bacteria can't grow in there and it gives it that kind of vinegary pickle flavor. So that's kind of a, a bunch of different preservation techniques in terms of like tools and tactics and ingredients and things, you know, I mentioned a couple of resources I'd add to that as well. Um, you know, there's a really pretty famous, pretty well-known book, at least in like preservation circles called Wild Fermentation, written by someone named Sander Katz. Uh, it's kind of one of the really popular go-to resources for anything to do with fermentation. So if you are interested in making sauerkraut or kimchi or kefir, but a lot of stuff like that, that book is really great if you're, if you're interested in doing some kitchen science experiments. You know, sometimes we'll have people come over and do their canning with us. That's kind of nice because you could all use the same equipment together and share recipes and stuff. One method I forgot to mention is dehydrating, really just drying pieces of food and, and kind of removing the moisture so that bacteria can't grow. You know, a lot of food preservation is really revolved around like, how do we either remove any bacteria from the food or prevent bacteria from getting into the food? thus making it last longer. 
So dehydrating is just using air and heat and light to a certain extent to remove that moisture. Um, and you can do this with a dehydrator. You can get like an electric dehydrator that has uh, kind of shelves on the inside where you lay your food down and then you set it to a certain temperature and certain time and it'll dehydrate that food. So making like jerkies. Just yesterday, actually, I made some venison jerky out of a deer that got hit by a car near me that I was able to, to kind of scavenge the good parts off of. So drying out that meat and making jerky will preserve it for, you know, I mean, I guess if it's completely dry, it'll preserve almost indefinitely. So I'd say for the equipment piece on there, if you're doing things like meats that are, that are pretty prone to bacterial growth, you probably want to do that in a dehydrator, unless you're really familiar with methods of drying meat that are, are safe. Because you, you can dry meat out in the sun. I don't know enough about it to really try it quite yet. Um, but there are things um, like there's something called biltong that I've never made before. That's traditionally the way it's made is just kind of strips of meat hung over a rope in the sun and the sun will kind of dry the meat um, and create pretty much like a, a jerky. But other than that, like a lot of vegetables, especially herbs, herbs and even mushrooms if you're if you're into like foraging wild mushrooms, certain mushrooms uh, have a low enough water content that if you kind of slice them up and put them on any kind of like a rack. So not necessarily on a solid surface, but over like a drying rack, almost that you use for like baking that you put like a, a loaf of bread on to let it cool. That raises it up off the surface a bit. If you leave them out for, you know, a couple of days, they'll sort of naturally dehydrate themselves. So that's a good option. If you don't want to like invest in an actual dehydrator, you can kind of play around with that. A lot of the techniques don't need a ton of equipment, except for the pressure canning needs some specialized stuff. But other than that, it's more information that you need. Canning in and of itself is pretty safe. You know, people talk about like the risk of botulism from canning. And yes, you can get botulism if you're not processing your, your jars in the right way. But from what I've seen, actual cases of botulism are pretty rare these days. I think the biggest thing is making sure that when you're doing any kind of canning, you are taking the time to inspect the jars, especially the ring at the top of the jar where the lid meets the glass. You know, run your fingers around that rim and make sure there's not any nicks or cracks look at the entire jar itself, make sure there's no like hairline cracks or anything in there. Just make sure it's, it's you know, a good quality jar. Um, you can reuse the same jars over and over, just as long as you're making sure that they're in good shape. And then the other pieces to a jar are the metal ring that kind of screws the lid on. And then there's the lid itself. So the lid is just that flat piece with the thin rubber layer on the, the underside. And that rubber layer is what what seals it to the glass of the, the jar itself. So those lids you can really only use one time, only one time for canning. You know, you can use them without actually, you know, pressure canning or water bathing them and reuse them over and over. But if you're actually sealing the jar, you can only use that lid once. I've heard of people using them twice, but I wouldn't necessarily advise it. I think it's just worth it to use new ones all the time because you want to make sure those are in absolutely perfect condition so you get a good seal. But other than that, with canning, you know, as soon as you take your jars out of 
the hot water or out of the pressure canner as they start cooling down you'll hear them kind of pop a little bit and that's that's the jar sealing itself so like the dimple on the lid of the jar will kind of pop down um, and as long as it stays down that jar should be sealed and there shouldn't be any any real bacteria growth in there the other thing to pay attention to when canning is making sure you're using the right amount of time to submerge your jars in the water bath or in the pressure canner. So, you know, it, it, it sounds really obvious, but it's worth saying, you know, if you look up how long your food in the jar is supposed to be in the water bath or in the pressure canner, and it says 20 minutes, don't take it out after 15 minutes because <laughs> you're, you're, you're kind of inviting trouble at that point. Personally, I like to let it, I like to leave it in there a little bit longer um, than, than what the books or what the resources actually say, just to be safe, um, just a, a couple of minutes longer, just to kind of make sure it's not really going to hurt anything if it's in there a little bit longer. But as long as it's in there for the right amount of time, the jars seal correctly, and then if we're using a pressure canner, as long as that pressure was at the range that it was supposed to be at for the right amount of time, you should be pretty good to go there. With fermenting, like lacto-fermenting we talked about, that one's also you know pretty safe. The important thing there is anytime you're lacto-fermenting anything, you know, using the salt water, like a sauerkraut, you're just going to want to make sure that all of the, the cabbage, for example, is below the surface of the water. So when you put the cabbage in the jar, you fill it with salt water, the water is going to be above the top of the cabbage. And then you can buy special weights. They're kind of like glass discs that you could put in the jar that holds all the cabbage below the surface of the water. Or you could also, you could use other things too, if you don't want to buy those special weights, but anything you could do to keep the cabbage below the salt water will prevent any kind of mold growth. Because if, if a couple pieces float up to the top and they get exposed to oxygen on the top, they'll grow mold. It's not a huge deal if that happens. You could really just kind of scrape off the top layer, pack everything down below the water again, and it's fine. It's not going to contaminate the entire jar. But you'll know when mold is growing, right? You'll see it'll be fuzzy. It might be white and fuzzy or like green or blue and fuzzy. So it's, it's pretty obvious when, when mold is growing inside those jars. And then otherwise with, with cold storing, if you're, you know, if you're cold storing potatoes or even apples or something like that, uh, <clears throat> you could tell pretty quickly when they're going bad. Um, you know, the first time we tried to cold store apples, we, <laughs> we found out the hard way that, um, you know, that goofy saying of one bad apple spoils the bunch is definitely true. So whenever you're cold storing anything, you got to really make sure that all the vegetables you're cold storing are in a pretty perfect condition. You know, there's no bruised areas or nicks um, in the skin that's going to let bacteria grow. Otherwise, they're just going to start to rot and that will spread to whatever else you have down there. But yeah, otherwise, I think, you know, food preservation is pretty safe as long as you're, you know, especially you're, you're being careful with the canning particularly the pressure canning, because that food is non-acidic and is, is prone to bacteria growth if you're not following the directions. This year, we've, we've been experimenting with canning things that instead of like individual food items, like canning green beans, 
will make something. So my partner makes um, really amazing coleslaw in the summertime with kale. So it's kind of a mix of like kale and cabbage, and pumpkin seeds, and like all of this great stuff. And she actually found a way to make that coleslaw without the mayonnaise and can that. And then when we want to eat coleslaw, we can open one of those cans, add the mayonnaise to it, and you have coleslaw. So that's something that I think is going to be great this winter, right? Because not only do we do we tend to not eat as many vegetables in the winter, but we don't have crunchy vegetables. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, but yeah, we, we really just try to kind of keep tabs on what we have. A lot of the times we've, we've experimented with like kind of crazy pickle recipes, you know, like cumin pickled carrots and stuff like that are really delicious, but it's like how many cumin pickled carrots can you really eat? So we try to be cognizant of not making too much of one thing. Um, but, you know, one example of kind of how we incorporate it is uh, we make a lot of bone broth as well. Um, we raise meat chickens this year. In addition to, you know, the meat, we've, we've made chicken stock and chicken broth out of the bones, uh, as well as, you know, from beef that we buy from a farmer who lives down the road. So we'll make a lot of broth at one time, pressure can all of it. Uh, and then every time we're making something that calls for that broth, we we have that homemade broth. Uh, the week after next, I'm gonna I'm gonna be taking a trip, um, kind of like a hunting and foraging trip. I'm gonna go uh, hunting and, and kind of foraging food around uh, some different places in New York State. Some of the preserved food with me. So I, I mentioned the venison jerky that I made. That's gonna come with me. I might take a jar of pickled eggs. Uh, that we made. I'll take that with me uh, as well as some canned meats. So I have a lot of canned beef uh, as well as canned venison uh, that I'll take with me just for like, you know, quick meals and maybe some sauerkraut too. A pint of canned beef and a pint of canned sauerkraut. You know, you could pack a lot of food in there. So that could be a couple of meals. So yeah, I'll be taking those uh, with me. But otherwise, my, my partner does a lot of variations of canned tomatoes. So we'll do like diced tomatoes, we'll do pasta sauce, we did barbecue sauce, ketchup. So all of those things we use, you know, semi-regularly. A lot of the stuff that we dehydrate too will be kind of like stock snacky foods uh, that we'll have around mostly dehydrated meats and like jerkies and things like that. Harvest season is always really special. I think especially when you live in a, in a place that gets four very distinct seasons. Uh, you know, it's like as soon as springtime hits, everything starts coming to life and everybody starts working really hard to get their gardens in and all of that. And then end of summer, beginning of fall is when harvest time really kicks into gear. So people are rushing to kind of get everything, store everything and kind of prep for the winter. You know, ever since we've moved up here, we usually do a harvest party in like late September. It usually is. We'll kind of do a potluck and have a bunch of people over and they could bring, you know, either things from their garden or stuff that they've made or, you know, anything they, that they want to kind of swap and trade. And, you know, we'll just have a little party at our place to kind of, you know, celebrate the harvest and, and start transitioning towards getting ready for winter. I mean, my family never really did a lot of food preservation. 
Um, I mean, my grandfather, when he was alive and I was a little kid, he was a butcher for like 35 years or so. So he always had, you know, two or three giant chest freezers in his basement, like full of meat. Uh, but other than that, they didn't, <clears throat> my family didn't really do much canning or, or storing or dehydrating or anything like that. Um, so I don't have a, a lot of memory around it. You know, I kind of got interested in it somewhat recently within the past maybe four or five years or so. Um, and I think what attracts me to it, and, and this is kind of related to, you know, hopes around the project or around the, the, the topic is, I mean, preservation is important to me because I, I wanted to dedicate more of my time as much as I kind of could to producing or procuring food because I think food autonomy and food sovereignty are incredibly important, um, you know, especially for people that consider themselves, uh, you know, radically inclined in some way. Um, you know, it's, we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that growing a tomato plant and then canning it is like, you know, really sticking it to the man or is, is this like massive anti-capitalist uh, gesture. But in a certain way, it, it kind of is. Um, you know, it, I think as much as we can, we can sort of remove ourselves or divorce ourselves from, uh, you know, from capitalist food production and kind of the dependence on, on a food system that is, is not built to actually nourish people, but built to make a small handful of people a lot of money at the detriment of everyone else. As much as we can move away from that, fantastic. You know, whether that's from growing a garden or, or canning your own food or whatever it is, um, I think any movement towards that is, is great. So yeah, preservation is kind of part of that for me, right? Because I think I'm, I'm very lucky that I've been able to, uh, you know, devote more of my time to, to food production. Uh, and that feels great. And, you know, in my, in my utopia world, uh, you know, we would have abundant wild foods where we can, we can just go pick a meal um, off of the land whenever we want, but that's that's just not really the world we live in right now, right? Humans have kind of taken a different path, unfortunately. Um, so it's it's necessary for us to to gather certain things at certain times, to grow things at certain times. Um, and I love eating seasonally uh, around what's actually fresh in that season, and I place a lot of value on that. However, I also really love, you know, cracking open that can of coleslaw in the middle of winter and having crunchy textured vegetables. Um, so yeah, preservation is, um, is important to me for that. Uh, and I think it, it could be important to, um, you know, on another level, like, like for us, we're lucky enough that we, we preserve food not so that we can eat in the winter, but so that we can eat the things that we want to eat in the winter. Um, and there's a, there's, I mean, there's a big difference there, right? So like we're, we're doing it for, for kind of pleasure purposes. I think I would hope that we can figure out ways to get more people access to a kind of lifestyle that enables them to do more of that.
Now, that being said, I think, you know, if people are in a position where you don't necessarily have property, you can't really have a garden, you don't have space to store food, like that's, that's totally legit. And, you know, we were, we were certainly there before we moved up here as well. But I think there are things that most people can do if you're interested in it, even if it's simple things like freezing. So yeah, I think it's, it's possible to kind of get, get creative about the space that you have. But yeah, I mean, I would love to keep talking to people about, you know, ways to make this more accessible to more people. Hopefully this contributes a little bit to that. As Tom mentioned, our next guest, Sandor Katz, is the author of Wild Fermentation, among other titles on the topic. Today, he speaks to Laura and Emily and gives us some insight into his work. Laura is a writer, a garlic farmer, a small-scale kimchi producer, and co-founder of the Common Home Farm community. Emily is a local farmer, home gardener, and a food and fermentation enthusiast. Here they are. You know, I call myself a fermentation revivalist. You know, ever since the publication of my first book about fermentation, which is Wild Fermentation, which came out uh, in 2003, you know, really what began as a book tour to promote Mm -hmm. my book has just never stopped. And I've sort of fallen Mm -hmm. into a life as an itinerant (laughs) fermentation teacher. I call Mm -hmm. myself a fermentation revivalist because these have been such, you know, kind of important skills and there's a huge curiosity around them. So that's, you know, that that's mostly what keeps me busy. And I have a new book, which is called Fermentation Journeys, which, you know, is really about fermented foods and beverages that I've Mm. learned about primarily in my travels. You know, I I mean, I just continue to be fascinated by all things fermented. And I love how much uh, incredible variety there is around the world in fermentation techniques. And, you know, anything we can possibly eat can be fermented in lots of different ways. And, you know, in my kitchen, I have a lot of different fermentation products going at the present moment, you know, lots of vegetable fermentation, and I mean, my garden is amazing this year. And I just have so many radishes, daikon mm-hmm. radishes, purple daikon radishes, black Spanish radishes, watermelon radishes. Mm-hmm. And so I'm fermenting them lots of different ways. My new book includes some newer for me methods of fermenting lots of things, but including fermenting vegetables. And so, you know, I'm very dedicated to sauerkraut and kimchi, but I get really jazzed learning about, you know, other styles of, of fermenting vegetables that, that people practice. And, you know, I, for me, I, I find that it's really fun to like mix it up. And right now I've been eating a lot of pao tsai, which is a, a Chinese style of fermenting vegetables uh, using a, you create like a broth brine, you know, using some spices, but then it becomes a perpetual brine that you keep on putting vegetables into and taking vegetables out and putting more vegetables in. And over time, you have to add more salt, add more seasonings, but it's a really beautiful method that I've been enjoying quite a bit. We have uh, had a bunch of volunteer radishes on our farm. And I just recently took out wild fermentation again to find out what... (laughs) (laughs) what we could do with them all. So I love to hear about all the different varieties you're growing. Radishes are just one of the most versatile, you know, vegetables that you can pickle in so many different ways. I mean, you know, I make radish kraut where I shred the radish and radishes and dry salt them. I make radish kimchi. I also have radishes. Another perpetual brine that I have that I wrote about in, in Fermentation Journeys is the idea of making a paste out of turmeric, garlic, 
turnips, salt, and a little bit of water. And then that paste becomes a, a medium for pickling. And the daikon radishes or any kind of white radish really is just gorgeous mm. in it and, and delicious, but, but mm. especially gorgeous because the color of the turmeric, you know, makes the outside of them and the outer layer like a really brilliant, bright yellow color. And then the color just sort of like fades as you go towards the center. So cross-sectional slices are really, really beautiful, not to mention delicious. I was going to ask if you would tell us about the communal land project you're a part of. One of the things we're curious about is sort of community level fermentation projects. If you've been involved with personally trying to sort of scale up from the home sized kitchen to more cooperative fermentation ventures. You know, I was part of a community for 17 years and I I no longer live within the community, but I live down the road from it. And in general, I try not to sort of talk about the community by name because, you know, they're, they're just not interested in, in publicity. And I don't want, you know, sort of, um, you you know, the, the, the work that I'm doing to promote fermentation to be inadvertently about promoting them because, because they don't want that. But, um, but certainly, I mean, my earliest explorations of fermentation and, you know, the first 17 years that I was, uh, experimenting with fermentation were completely within that context. And, you know, I think that, you know, fermentation is a great community scale activity, just as, um, you know, anything related to producing food is. I mean, I think that, you know, gardening, keeping goats, having an orchard, you know, all of these things make a lot of sense in the context of a community and a community can really help to, you know, spread the burden out so it doesn't all fall on, you know, one individual person. And, uh, you know, in terms of scaling up ferments, I mean, most ferments scale up really simply. You know, it's just a matter of, you know, finding the right vessel. And and in fact, ceramic crocks that are so widely available actually mm-hmm. make more sense for community scale fermentation than they do for, you know, small family or household uh, mm-hmm. uh, scale fermentation. I, I mean, I think for most people with a small family, jars are, are really sufficient as fermentation fermentation vessels to be able to feed more people then you know you probably want to go for bigger vessels which will you know in all likelihood be ceramic crocks or if you go really big it could be wooden barrels could be you know plastic mm-hmm. barrels there's a lot of different materials but i mean especially in the realm of fermenting vegetables it works just as well if you make twice as much five times as much 10 times as much a hundred times as much. Obviously it's more cleaning and chopping, but sort of easier for it to maintain a pretty stable temperature. But one thing we run into when we scale up is that for the kimchi to have what we think of as like the best flavor, that's not tasting rotten, but it's really just crisp and sour. It needs to ferment at this like 50 degree temperature. Once you get into those bigger crocks and vessels and things like that, have you found any ways to sort of keep the temperature constant or how do you deal with temperature as the variable that can really affect how something ferments? Well, I mean, temperature is a, is a critical variable that affects how things ferment. You know, I've been living in off-the-grid situations the whole time that I've been doing this, so I've never really had the possibility mm. of having a, a stable temperature. And, uh, you know, most things can deal with a certain amount of fluctuation. You know, vegetables can be fermented really at any 
temperature where we can comfortably exist. But I agree with you, you get a much better flavor and you maintain a much, much better texture if you have a cool spot. So I have a cellar that in the cool part of the year stays pretty much earth temperature around 55 degrees. And I do a lot of fermentation down there. But, you know, I do a certain amount of vegetable fermentation in the warmer part of the year. And I just do it in my kitchen at whatever the ambient temperature happens to be. But I just ferment things for much shorter periods of time and then store them in the refrigerator. I know that you don't want to advertise the land project that you have been a part of, but I am curious about while you were living there and while you are still presumably somewhat a part of it, you know, still being in the area, what your role there was, you know, were you kind of like the go-to fermenter or was it a big part of the culture there? Is it something that folks, you know, took part in a lot of the time? At the time that I moved there, which is 1993, there wasn't really anybody who was doing any very active fermentation. Maybe in the summer, people would make like country wine out of elderberries or blueberries or something like that. But there wasn't a huge amount of fermentation. But, you know, it's a place that's been a community since 1973. And one of the things that sparked my initial excitement to make sauerkraut is, you know, I found an old crock in the barn. So, you know, somebody who had been living there prior to my arrival uh, had, you know, either been doing some fermenting or at least had a vessel in which they, they could have. I mean, I got involved in gardening first, you know, and I, I was very involved from the very beginning in cooking, preparing food for people. My interest in fermentation really grew out of my overlapping interests in gardening and feeding people. Because, you know, once you start thinking about how to make use of the seasonal abundance of the garden, then, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, different ways of, of preserving vegetables, you know, fermentation is just part of that. And, you know, I had grown up eating pickles and eating sauerkraut and being vaguely aware that they were considered strategies for preservation. But, you know, I had never personally had any necessity to preserve vegetables. So, you know, once I was in this sort of gardening situation and, you know, we had a beautiful uh, row of cabbage, you know, suddenly I had a practical reason to investigate how to make sauerkraut. And I learned how to make sauerkraut from the joy of cooking. Once I made it, I, I like, I loved the kraut that I made and, you know, it just made me want to experiment with different seasonings, different combinations of vegetables. And that's what I did. And certainly people in the community were interested. People in the community were eating the things that I made and generally liking them. Maybe sometimes some people would make a little face or something and, you know, not, not everybody loves every flavor of, of fermentation. I think that that's pretty clear. And other people certainly started getting interested and, and sometimes, you know, doing it with me or encouraging me, but it really, it did become, you know, part of my identity within the community. A, a friend gave me this nickname that has stuck with me of Sandor Kraut because, you know, I was always serving Kraut and, you know, showing up at other people's houses with Kraut to share. It's really out of that reputation and nickname that I got invited a few years later by some friends in another community in Tennessee who were organizing this food Skillshare event that they were calling Food for Life. But that was the first time I ever taught about fermentation. You know, that was a, a, a huge step because, you know, I, I came face to face with people's anxiety about fermentation. I mean, it's so easy for people who have been told all of their life how dangerous bacteria are 
to project that anxiety onto the idea of cultivating bacteria in a jar. And those first experiences teaching really, I don't know, forced me to do some more research to be able to adequately answer people's questions about their anxiety. You know, how can I be sure I have good bacteria growing in this jar and not some dangerous bacteria that might make me sick or even kill somebody? So, you know, it sort of forced me to do a little bit more reading so that I would be able to give a convincing answer to people who had questions like that. So, um, you know, getting invited to teach about fermentation was a huge sort of, you know, step in in my evolution. Thank you. That's that's beautiful. I'm also curious about how your involvement in doing so much fermentation um, has informed or changed the way that you see the world. And I think that you touch on this a little bit in fermentation as metaphor, which I just got from the library and I'm just starting to read, but I was curious about what you would have to say about that. You know, fermentation has changed how I view the world in a couple of different ways. I mean, on, the, on, on one level, you know, just the fact of dealing with microorganisms, invisible life forces, you know, I think has made me into a more observant person. I, I think it's enabled me to sort of tune into subtler details. That, that maybe at the beginning of my, you know, uh, uh, fermentation practice, I, I wouldn't have been as, as tuned into. But then beyond that, on a, on a macro scale, on a, on, a, on a cultural scale, I mean, it's just, you know, made me think about food in very different ways and, and just, you know, think about food as a reflection of culture and place and that food culture is about finding ways to make effective use of food resources that are abundant. And, you know, the diversity of food traditions around the world, the diversity of fermentation traditions around the world are really manifestations of place in terms of, you know, what kinds of foods can grow easily in different places and therefore are the abundant foods. And how does the climate of the place influence what is potential for fermentation? I mean, you know, we started this conversation by talking about like controlling temperatures. And the reality is until the 20th century, most people in most places had no ability to control temperatures beyond selecting warmer spots or cooler spots. You know, they had to work with the environment as it is. And so, you know, all of these distinctive traditions that have developed around the world have developed out of the environmental conditions that exist, not out of creating idealized environmental conditions. So yeah, I mean, I think thinking about fermentation, practicing fermentation, talking to so many people about fermentation, seeing different manifestations of fermentation in different places, like, you know, all of these things have influenced, you know, the way I see things and the way I approach the world. You're obviously a writer, you've written a number of books. And um, I was curious if you'd be willing to share anything about sort of your creative life in that regards, what that looks like, how you make time for that. Well, first of all, I'll just say that having put out two books in two years, I'm definitely not in a hurry to write another book. <laughs> I, ima I imagine eventually I will, but I'm definitely not one of these people who always has to be working on a, on a book project. I like to write for sure. You know, when I'm writing, it's mostly about creating a routine. It's hard for me to write if I'm like, traveling all the time and every day is different. But, you know, my ideal scenario for writing is like 
I'm at home, I get into a routine and I devote a period of every day to working on the project, moving it forward. And one of the things I love about writing about food is, you know, the work isn't all sitting at the computer typing. You know, it's a, it's a balance between doing that and experiments in my kitchen. So, you know, during the period of writing, you know, most of my books, any of my books that have been sort of practical, how-to oriented, you know, a big part of my routine has been, you know, having a list of projects and gathering the ingredients that I need and doing the projects and evaluating them, developing the recipes, etc. So I love all of that, but I also love just the mechanics of writing and just thinking about how to express myself you know, what are the most important points that I'm trying to make? You know, I definitely, a lot of revision is part of my process. Reading out loud to myself is part of my process. But the most important thing is just making some time every day. And, you know, working on it every day is part of really keeping the project active in my mind. And I, I really do enjoy that quite a bit. It strikes me that that keeping it active in your mind parallels very well with fermentation, just sort of needs some attention. Maybe sometimes it's sitting, but it's always active. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I was curious about if you have any formal training in writing or did you kind of just like sit down one day and start writing? You think that your style feels so approachable and very conversational, which is wonderful. But I was wondering how you got started with writing. As a young person, to some degree, or at certain times, I, I thought of myself as a writer. But, you know, like so many young people who have the vague idea of being writers, I had no idea what to write about. You know, I, I did not have any specific education related to fermentation. I didn't go to culinary school. I didn't study food science. I didn't study microbiology. You know, I was a history major in college. You know, I was very much about like, you know, liberal arts and, you know, studying lots of different things and, you know, not really thinking of it as, um, you know, necessarily job training or anything. But the practical training that you get in an education like that is writing, you know, writing a lot of papers and learning learning about how to communicate about ideas in writing. And then, you know, my early jobs after college, well, I was a high school teacher briefly, but then I ended up doing work in advocacy and municipal government in, in, in New York. And in those kinds of jobs, I was doing a ton of writing. You know, it wasn't necessarily my personal voice when I was working for the Manhattan Borough President's office. I was writing a lot in the voice of the elected official who I was writing for. But, it, you know, in a way, it doesn't matter what you're writing about. It's still, you know, it's it's training in writing. It's just, you know, learning how to express yourself clearly. And, you know, I really fell into writing about fermentation. So, you know, I told you that, you know, I moved, I moved to the commune. The first year I was there, I learned how to make sauerkraut and started playing around with, with fermentation. I started doing more and more of it, getting obsessed. I got this nickname and this reputation. I got invited to teach at this uh, food Skillshare event. And so I did that in 1998, 1999, and 2000. And then I had a conflict in 2001, and I couldn't make this, this annual food Skillshare event. And so what I did is I spent like a month writing down my fermentation recipes. And so, you know, the first iteration of wild fermentation was just like a Xeroxed 32 page zine that I sent in my stead to be at this food Skillshare event. But as soon as I wrote that, you know, I realized this is something exciting for me to write about. This is something where I have a lot to say. And, you know, as I think about it, I have a lot to learn. I mean, you know, I had no idea that I'd still be, you know, writing about 
about it 20 years later and here I am. But, you know, it did just sort of suggest itself to me as, um, you know, something that it would be really exciting for me to, to write about. And it answered that question that I had pondered a decade earlier. Well, I like to write. What do I want to write about? And so that's how I fell into writing about fermentation. Do you use your own, do you go back to your wild fermentation book uh, for recipes or is everything you do now sort of like experimental or already in your head? No, I mean, certain things I'll, I'll look like, you know, I, a couple of weeks ago, I was nixtamalizing corn and I looked in wild fermentation to remind myself, you know, what proportion of cow to use with the corn. So yeah, I look in it. I, I look in it once in a while when I'm, when I'm looking for some um, specific proportion. Do you have any other go-to books that are not yours that you enjoy or in general, any other fermentation folks who you draw inspiration from? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it's really, um, you know, it's impressive how the fermentation community has has grown. Um, you know, the internet sort of makes that easier, but the literature has really blossomed in, in recent years. I mean, I would say Pascal Bodar is somebody whose books I really uh, love and have been inspired by. He wrote a book called um, uh, Wild Crafted Fermentation and another one that's a uh, I think it's the wild crafting brewer or something like that. So he's someone who was a wild crafter and was writing books about wild crafting and then, you know, got interested in fermentation, um, you know, as, um, you know, uh, as, as a great thing to do with some of the things that he was uh, foraging. Um, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, any of the books by uh, uh, Kirsten and Christopher Shockey um, and, you um, uh, they wrote a book called Miso Tempe Nato. They wrote a book about fermenting vegetables. They have a book recently about make about vinegar making, a book about cider making. But um, you know their books are are are, are really wonderful and um, uh, uh, very accessible. No, I definitely look at you know I I, I definitely read other people's books and um, 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 check them out. I mean Koji Alchemy. Um, by Jeremy Umansky and Rich Shi for anyone who's interested in Koji. I mean, you know, that book, you know, really, um, um, you know, opens the door wide. And, um, you know, they've, they've taken Koji, you know, sort of way beyond its um, traditional applications and, you know, doing all kinds of, you know, very experimental things with it. I would just point people towards my, my website, wildfermentation.com. My new book is called Fermentation Journeys. My, my other fermentation books are Wild Fermentation. That's the original one, and I revised it in 2016. And uh, The Art of Fermentation, that's, that's the biggest one with the most information. And then also you mentioned fermentation as metaphor. I mean, you won't find practical how-to information about fermentation there, but it's more just sort of reflections on, you know, some broader context for thinking about fermentation, as well as ways in which we use fermentation in the English language to describe any kind of phenomenon that is, uh, you, you know, basically like bubbly and exciting. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. And so, um, you know, I had, I had a really good time reflecting on that along with all these microscopy images in fermentationist metaphor. And then I have one other book, which is um, sort of the sleeper of all of my books, but I wrote it in 2006 and it's called The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved. 
inside America's underground food movements. And it's really just a, like a survey of grassroots food activism, you know, really inspired by people who I met mm. on my original wild fermentation book tour. You have done so much experimenting and gotten to experience so many different types of fermentation. But I'm wondering if your mind gets blown frequently anymore since you've seen so much. And part of that question is, what's the wildest thing that you've learned in the past year or like learned about? Or has there been a time recently when you felt like your mind was kind of blown? I mean, on the one hand, you know, accepting that like anything we could possibly eat can be fermented makes it hard for me to be surprised when I encounter different kinds of ferments. But, you know, I would say something that I encountered a couple of years ago uh, when I was teaching in Colombia, which I've written about in Fermentation Journeys, is a food that like really surprised me. And I loved it. And I love telling people about it. It's an Amazonian ferment called Tukupi. And it's made from the toxic juice of cassava. So, um, you know, cassava, which is manioc or yuca, it has different names, but um, it's this uh, starchy tuber that's eaten in tropical regions all around the world. It's originally believed to be from the Amazon. And in certain soils in the Amazon, in West Africa, in parts of the Caribbean, cassava grows with high levels of cyanide and enough cyanide to easily kill people. And so there's various strategies people use to remove the cyanide from the cassava, including fermentation. Another one people use is squeezing the juice out. The toxins are concentrated in the juice. So if you grate it and then squeeze it well to get the juice out, people sometimes use the grated cassava uh, without processing it further. But that juice, that toxic juice can be fermented and then cooked down. And tukupi is basically the cooked down toxic juice of cassava, the fermented and then cooked down previously toxic juice of the cassava. And it is so delicious. And it's this like thick, sticky black tar Whoa. with its sour and salty and just has a beautiful flavor. You know, it really kind of blew my mind that people could sort of take the toxic byproduct of this plant and turn it into such a delicious condiment. Wow. And so it's no longer dangerous to consume after that process? Exactly. Because the fermentation breaks down the cyanide compounds into harmless forms. Humans are very, very clever. And that certainly has been you know, reaffirmed over and over and over again for me through looking at fermentation. We'd like to shout out the recent seed saving episode of Propaganda by the Seed, which gives detailed advice on harvesting and saving your seeds. We'll have a link to the episode on our website. Thanks to Ren, Tom, Laura, Emily, and Sandor for sharing their conversations with us. We'll have links to the various resources mentioned in this episode on our website, partisangardens.org. This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world. To the servers and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. 
We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org and we will be in touch.